have you ever had this, the sneaking suspicion that everything is going to pot? I mean, it's not only just your knee that's going bad, but it's just everything that's going to pot everywhere you look. It's beginning to sink down into the mire. It's beginning to slowly slough, you know, flop around in the mud. By George, everywhere you look. The BBC presents... It's third in the series of programs entitled, By God, There Are Signs That the Empire Is Falling Apart! Straws in the wind everywhere, the BBC fuse with alarm. Once again, the BBC and its worldwide broadcasting services on the third programming department bring to you its evil straws in the wind. <laughs> Everywhere one looks, one can see that Western civilization is beginning to ravel at the seams, and even the British Empire is beginning to show a threadbare sign here and there. We view with alarm. Tonight, our straw in the wind is from one of our most honored colonies, Canada. Each summer, officials of the Royal Botanical Garden in Hamilton, Ontario, in the provinces, conduct a children's program to teach the youngsters to be more aware of nature. We salute that program itself. This year... Conservationists concede that the program took an embarrassing turn. When this summer's study opened, 40 children, good British colonists from Canada, were sent off on a two-mile hike into forest and marsh. Their group leader pointed out some sassafras trees and then showed them a stream whose soft bank looked like a good spot for turtles to deposit their eggs. He scratched around in the muddy soil and produced six small, round, white objects, which he explained were turtle eggs, laid at the end of May and buried so that skunks and other marauders would not eat them. The leader then reburied the small, round, white objects. While the group went on, three of the inquisitive ones decided to take another look at the eggs. They scratched around the soft soil and finally located the cache. But one boy complained the egg he had wasn't leathery, the way the leader said it should be. An eight-year-old girl said her egg felt cold and hard. Then a second boy exclaimed that his egg was marked Made in England. By God. John Lamado chief conservationist of the gardens, admitted that the turtle eggs were so scarce this year that his staff substituted ping-pong balls. He thought they had sandpapered off all the labels. Once again, the BBC brings you its program. <laughs> Evil straws in the wind. The downfall of Western civilization is imminent, and everywhere one looks, one can see the empire is slowly beginning to decay. King Pong calls indeed.
again next week. It's the same time when the third program brings you its program in a long series entitled Decay is Upon Us. This has been a public service podcast of the British Broadcasting Corporation. Stay tuned for Wilfred Pickles, who follows in just a moment with funny sayings. Excuse me, madam. Everywhere you look. Everywhere. There's only one way. Oh, the other thing, and that's the other one there. There's only one way, Walt. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, so, you know, it's wise to... to, to uh, then again, on the other hand, one wonders whether it ever is wise. Please. Uh, all together now. There, that's enough. I haven't blown the old nose flute in a long time. It, uh, of course, uh, I must say, oh, to those of you who are nose flautists or nose flute fans, the humanitone is not a nose flute. Uh, this is a, a common uh, misapprehension. You want to hear a little more of the flute? I haven't played the nose flute in a long time. I, I, uh, <laughs> I was able to get into Martha Dean's office this afternoon, and uh, I'm only borrowing it now. However, the, the nose flute is an old traditional instrument. And uh, it is. It really is. And uh, it, uh, it uh, was imported many, many years ago, imported into Europe from, uh, from the far South Pacific. It was blown there by Polynesian natives. And, of course, uh, uh, it's still blown there by Polynesian natives, I understand, in one way or another. It's a very peculiar crew, a very tough crew. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, well, uh, is everybody out there? Oh, oh you're interested in uh, nose flutes, huh? Well, I've got a lot of things here. You know, uh, hold it there for one minute, Walt. I'll give you a cue. You don't have to watch. It's not so, it's not so, so uh, pushing here for a moment. Uh, this little thing of the decline of the British Empire... While although uh, funny, is not necessarily so funny, that is. And every place you look, uh, if you look way in the back pages of various newspapers, you will find little things. Hey, Walt, Walt, could you get back here for a second? What is the thing down underneath the control board that you turn to bring up the gain on this thing? There is a switch that they throw back there. There, there we are. What is it? Why do you, what, what, is, what is that thing, anyway? It's always turned the other way. What does it do? It's a skin flint. It's a cue. Oh, good, good. Gee, I'm back on the air here. It's funny. Uh, we've got a, you know, speaking of funny little straws in the wind, there was a great article that came out of a newspaper here a couple of days ago. Yeah, show, show him that, because if he's called upon it, he want to know what that thing is there. Interesting little thing. Hardly anybody works it, except to turn it off, whatever it is. And uh, that's something there. But uh, I have a little story here that is in connection with this, this general rise and fall. You know, I'm debating here tonight whether or not to, to really touch on this problem of reality in our time. I don't know whether I should tell the story about the great fish cleaning. Uh, no, don't just say, yeah. Everybody says, yeah, 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 tell a story. Well, I don't know whether or not the urban citizens 
of uh, Eastern America are up to a glimpse into the reality of life and death. And that's in little letters. That is not capital letters. It has nothing to do with magazines. I wonder if there's a magazine being prepared called Death as an antidote to the other well-known magazine. Oh, no, no, um, don't laugh. Don't laugh. We've got one called Fortune. We've got one called Time. It only seems that I, I know that. Do you know that there's one called Taxes? So it only falls into place that there's, there's an inevitable opening there for somebody who wants to turn out a magazine to fit out the great cornerstones of reality, of existence, or non-existence. Uh, as long as we're on the subject of existence. I have this little piece here that I, I, I... I'll think about whether I should tell you the story about the great fish clean. Uh, how long has it been since you've cleaned any fish? I wonder whether or not the people who live here in the eastern seaboard regions and whose only contact with fish is going to a fancy seafood joint and waiting in line for about four and a half hours till you get in there and you can buy yourself a lobster. Uh, I'm not, not so sure. <laughs> I'm not so sure you know that those are live things and that somebody grabbed it in his, his hand, you know, while it was fighting them. I'm not so sure you know about that, so I don't know whether we should tell you even that. Raleigh, North Carolina, United Press International. Wally Owsley, a local boy from Raleigh, spat a watermelon seed 35 feet 6 inches yesterday. The unheralded Owsley's remarkable performance astounded the crowd, shamed his competitors, and broke the watermelon festival tomato seed and watermelon seed spitting contest record. The old champion, John Alexander, once spat a watermelon seed 34 feet flat. His best effort yesterday was 29 feet, and a good spit at that. And it appeared that it would win in a walk. Then Owsley, an unknown competitor, stepped to the foul line, bit off a hunk of watermelon, and carefully selected a likely seed with his tongue. He held the seed between his teeth, weft an air around it to dry it off. Then he leaned his 200-pound frame forward, squinted, and loosed a mighty spit that brought gasps of wonder from the crowd. Thirty-five feet, six inches, a new world record. It's just a matter of conditioning, said Owsley very modestly. <laughs> All right, let's go. I'm the chief of the Oh, at night when you are asleep. Hold it. That's right. I know just when to stop. Just when to stop and just when to start. Uh, now, now about Osley, in case you're interested in Osley's record, I'll, I once held a record which I'm not very proud of, although yet now thinking about it, I think I should be even prouder of it than I was at the time. Uh, speaking of sullen records and sullied escutcheons, this is WORAM at FM, New York, and we'll be here until midnight. All right, I'll tell you the record I once held. It's an awful record, and, and uh, you know, when you're a kid, in fact, all the way through your life when you're a person, you know, when you stop being a kid and you become a person, uh, you still are a victim of the reward principle of existence, where... You do things because of certain subtle rewards that will befall you if you do them. Now, it's hard to know when this starts. Does a guy write a great novel because he wants to say all this fantastic stuff about existence or other other things? Like, you know, Cheers. 
like making a scene at Sardi's, you know, like having Richard Rogers recognize your live and shake your hand, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And you get on the Ed Sullivan show. I wonder. Very hard to know, you see, because I some of my best friends who started out to be artists are now just plain personalities. And and I began to see that they were not at all doing what they said they were doing, nor were they interested in doing what they claimed they said they were doing. Uh, what they really wanted to do was to be famous and to be applauded and to be loved. And uh, so some of the guys that started out as, oh, name it, cartoonists. Um, one, uh, so one, one of the most famous guys of all uh, that we know of in our time started out to be a novelist, wrote, wrote one fairly good novel, in fact, quite, a, quite an interesting novel. And he suddenly became applauded, cheered, loved, and everything else, and he has not written a decent book since. And he goes around now, and all he does is be cheered, loved, and applauded. And, and oddly enough, he has written about more today than when he was writing. Now they only write about him, oh, they write reams of copy about him, always saying, why isn't he writing? Uh, what terrible torments are within this man that cause him not to write the next great American novel? And he plays Carnegie Hall, and he plays everything, and he goes around. And he's more famous today than when he was writing. Well, now the question is, uh, did this guy really want to write or not? Or did he just want to be a writer? That's in caps, you know. They're not the same thing at all. Uh, I have a friend who started out to be a great cartoonist, and now all he does is, uh, you know, uh, sort of be around and be a great character, which is okay, except that it says something about what the original idea was. This is what, uh, what I'm interested in here. So, so as a kid, you know, you start out, and people hold out rewards to you. And they say, now, if you're a good boy, and if you'll eat your peas, and uh, if you eat all your beets without spilling them on the floor and drink all of your milk, we'll go to the show tonight. Well, all right, so you begin to associate eating peas with Tarzan. <laughs> it's true. You really do. It's a little subtle thing there. And, and somebody says, now, if you're a good boy, we will allow you to stay up one half hour later tonight. You won't have to go to bed at 9 o'clock. You can stay up to 9.30 and be bored for an extra half hour tonight and wonder what to do when there's nothing to do. You just stand around and scratch. But nevertheless, if you are a good boy, you will be allowed to stay up late. Now, uh, subtly, we begin to assume a thing of total illegality, which is like staying up too late, or going to see Tarzan movies, is somehow associated with being good. If you're good, you can do things you shouldn't do. Like if you're good, you can have three malted milks. Well, yeah, it's an interesting system, and, and, and nevertheless it works, and you don't know quite where it starts and where it stops. Now, I, as a kid, became, uh, through one reason or another, I became a fantastically involved fisherman. I, I, I didn't do much fishing because there wasn't a great deal of fishing around where we were, so I read all the fishing magazines, you know, Field and Stream, Outdoor Life, and I'd read about these guys going to Alaska and fishing for salmon. I'd read about these guys going up into the Sierra Nevada mountains fishing for golden trout. And I'd read about these guys who have discovered this untouched bass lake somewhere in the Ozarks. And giant 25-pounders are leaping into their boat and they're, they're beating the pickerel off with the oars. And, they, you know, the, the fish were so fantastic that they chased them ashore. You know, the fish just chased the fishermen right up into the woods, that kind of thing. And, and I'm reading these stories. And I became known in the family, I, I don't think I've ever told you about this, as the kid that was the nut on fishing. Oh, I became an absolute nut. And I even got, went to the extent of learning how to make flies, even though I had never been fly casting in my life. 
Uh, I, I read articles in Field and Stream on how to tie flies, and so I'm tying silver doctors and royal coachmen and black gnats and all the rest of it. And, of course, they were terrible. The ins- I would try them out in the bathtub, and I'd throw them in there, you see, see whether they made a ripple or whether, they- and they'd go plunk, you know, they'd land. They're supposed to be a floating fly down to the bottom. I could never figure out the business of dressing flies, but I did it. I tried to tie flies. And I would tie them on terrible old catfish hooks, you know, instead of those beautiful little thin salmon hooks you're supposed to get. And so I also began to make plugs, wooden plugs, you know, with the treble hooks on the bottom. And I would go to, the, there was a sporting goods store in town, and I would go there and they, they would sell treble hooks and things to make plugs with. I don't suppose they even do that anymore. No, not to make them. They do sell plugs. So let's just say, yeah, they do not. I wonder if they sell things whereby you can buy the stuff to make your own. I'm questioning that. And you say, yeah, what makes you think you know? I'll tell you, they don't hardly sell even plugs at Macy's anymore. And you tell me, yeah, they do? Well, I'm curious. You could buy all the little countersinking things and all the equipment to build plugs. And so I used to spend the winter carving plugs, or at least part of the winter, carving plugs out of uh, broomsticks. You'd cut a little six-inch piece of a broomstick off, and you'd carve a plug. So that was the kind of a nut I was. And about, oh, maybe once every, during the summertime, when the summer would hit down hot and steamy, my old man was one of these, uh, well, he was uh, he was an Indiana, once-in-a-while fisherman and beer party goer to her. That kind of a fisherman, you know. He was not the kind, he was not a guy that would go down to the, uh, down to the shore here and fish for stripers for 37 years to catch one fish. Be there every day. No, no, not at all. He was the kind who would go about once every month when all the guys down at the office would get, would have that itch, you know, they'd decide, let's get out because the bowling season was over and everything. And it was a way of getting away and drinking a lot of beer and yelling. Well, to me, that was a sacred thing. They were going fishing. I never really quite realized, you know, that, that, there, that there are people who fish and there are people who go fishing. Now, there's two, two different things entirely. And so he would gather these guys and they would go down to this, the single lake. Now, why nobody fished in Lake Michigan, I don't know. A few people would fish down there. But Lake Michigan was too big and too awesome and everything. And no one really went to, when they were going fishing, they didn't go to Lake Michigan. They would go to this lake, and, and uh, you do not know what an Indiana lake is, and just, just give me one moment here and I will describe to you what an Indiana lake in northern Indiana is. To begin with, it is much hotter there than it is here. Heat out in Indiana and in, in southern, uh, throughout Illinois and Kansas and Kentucky and Tennessee, heat is something you can literally slice off. You can cut pieces of it. They used to slice it off, and my, my old man would pile it up in the basement, you know, to keep it for summer. You know, when summer was over or on cool days, we would bring it out and burn it. <laughs> really, heat was just something you could grab by the handles. It was fantastic. And once in a while, you could look out. You would uh, Once in a while, almost every day, you would look out of the house, or, or you'd walk around the street, and the whole town is just shimmering. It's just hanging. Everything, everything is wiggling. And you'd look across the street, and you'd see little old fat ladies, and they're skinny. When it's when it, when the heat is shimmering, they get real skinny. You know, it's like the fun mirrors, the funny mirrors. You know, at Coney Island, and and skinny people would get fat, and cars would get long and skinny, or they'd get short and fat. And it's just all heat thing. And we used to have actual, you know, heat. A combination of heat and sun, and uh, uh, a certain kind of sky produces mirages. You know, they don't only have only have mirages in the desert. This is something that people are not aware of. They keep thinking in terms of the mirages in the Sahara Desert. 
Well, all it takes is good flat country, Ed. That's right. Good flat country, it takes a certain kind of heat, it takes a certain kind of humidity, it takes a certain kind of sky, and by George, you're looking at Cleveland. Uh, that's the truth. We would be going out, I remember many a time, standing out in the outfield on a, on a fantastically hot day and looking out across the prairies, stretching out endlessly on either side. Once in a while, there'd be a little building sticking up, and you could see those prairies. And way out past the swamp, you would see this shadowy thing that none of us would even pay any attention to. It's Cleveland. Yeah, or it's or it's it's Indianapolis, or or once in a while you would look up into the air. Sure, you could you could get on a very hot day. Uh, you'd look up in the air and you would see oh, sort of like a cloud hanging just over the horizon. You would see the Chicago skyline, just hanging there, and it would be up there for maybe a half an hour and then it would gradually disappear. It was a mirage, so that kind of heat, you know, is a different kind of heat than we have around here. Really hot. So fishing out there was a very different thing than it is from here. And they had these lakes that around about, I'd say, around about May, with the sun beating down on them, they begin to simmer. They begin to literally bubble around the edges because they're, they're not fed by springs. I don't know what they're fed by. They're fed by seepage, I think. <laughs> that's an awful thought. Yeah, that's the kind of lakes they have there. And they're nothing but weeds on the bottom, and they have these round, sort of flat, low, muddy banks and they're surrounded by cottonwood trees. There's a great long bank of cottonwood trees and cattails and smelly marshes and old dumps. and Yeah, oh, real dumps. Somehow dumps all gravitate to lakes. Way down at the end, they have all the old cars and the ashes and the stuff dumped in. And at the other end, there's a roller rink. There's always a roller rink by an Indiana lake. Uh, yes, a roller rink, and you can hear that organ go, mm pop pop mm pop 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 It's going, a terrible organist is playing the organ down there, and you hear the sound of roller skates going, and, and fist fights of the roller rink nuts. The roller rink nut was an early uh, diner drive-in theater nut. Uh, this was before the drive-in theater got very big, and now, of course, they're all in drive-ins. But the roller rink screwball was uh, was the kind who later on became an aficionado of motels, drive-ins, and diners. Uh, he later bought motorcycles and 47 Mercuries and that kind. But uh, this was an early form of that, the same crowd, you know, the fist-fighting, yelling, hollering crowd, drinking the beer and trying to roller skate on one foot and that business, you know, and they were always look always on the muscle. And, uh, these, you know, the cretins, you know what I'm talking about, the eternal cretins. Uh, you know, the guys with the low foreheads and the, the, the crew cuts, and they've got the great big silk sort of satin jacket on the, you know, on the back. It says AC spark plugs or something on the back with a winged foot. You know that crowd. <laughs> you know what I'm talking You know that. The, the, the kind that hang the stuff on the back windows of their cars. You know, on the little rubber things that bounce up, they hang a little pair of dice. Or, or, or a skull and crossbones, or a couple of little hula hula dolls, you know, and they have the little, you know, the kind of, the guys with the cars, and they put the f ball fringe around the edges of the windows up on the top, and the phony Venetian blinds in the back, you know, that whole, ooh, what an awful crowd, I think about it, and, oh, ugh, you know, and, and they all have these, almost invariably, they have these white rubber mud guards down on the bottom of their cars, you know, with the, with the red, <laughs> with the red reflectors, oy, oy, oy. You know the crew. Yes, indeed. This is a particular American product. We turn that out like we turn out Campbell's pork and beans. 
uh, like we turn out Hollywood movies, we turn out the 47 Mercury Cretin. A uh, very special type of guy. There's probably 94 of them now listening. You know, and they read things like customizing car magazines. You know, like oh yeah, yeah, you know, with the, with the, with the, with the. <laughs> Have you ever seen some? Oh, some some of the most atrocious, the, the fantastic atrocities that win win prizes in those magazines. Like they will line a car with the plastic imitation mink skin. You know, the thick, uh, then, the, then they pad the steering wheel, so the steering wheel weighs 17 pounds and is fat, you know, that kind of thing. And they have little, uh, one guy, did you see, I saw one where a guy had a, had a TV set, a bar, and a folding Castro bed in his trunk that was automatically operated and all lined with white imitation mink. It was a very, very interesting automobile. Well, it's that kind of aesthetics that, uh, <laughs> that brings the roller rink to Cedar Lake, Indiana. Well, about 150 yards away from the roller rink is the, uh, is the Cedar Lake Dance Hall. Now, the Cedar Lake Dance Hall is another steamy place that is filled with yeasty cast-offs from the roller rink. These are guys that can't roller skate. And now they're all down there listening to this Mickey band. There's, there's 12 cretinous musicians down there, and they're playing Red Sails on the Sunset. <laughs> and in between them are 17 small shacks known as beer halls. So now you got the picture of, of the wilds. So this is the this is nature uh, in in northern Indiana. Now now surrounding that is a gigantic swatch of total darkness, absolute pitch black stygian darkness. And there's this one tiny island of totally decadent bucolic merriment. The roller skates going, and you can hear Mickey Isley's band in there. The seven Mickey men of rhythm. Are, are blowing it out there, and you can hear them <laughs> tootling away. And in the middle of the lake are over 17,000 fishermen at 2 o'clock in the morning in lead rowboats, rented at a dollar and a half an hour at 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning. And over the entire scene, you see, remember, the temperature is 175 degrees, humidity about 1,200%. You can smell decayed toads. You can smell the dumps down at the other end of the lake, and once in a while you get a waft of Sinclair oil, which is about a mile away, you know, down there, the, the refinery. And there's 1,274 guys sitting in the middle of the lake in one little clump fishing for the 19 crappies, which are in that lake. Crappies are uh, <laughs> are, a, these are a Midwestern fish of an undetermined species which have never been known to fight or anything. They just, they're just down there. No one quite knows what they eat or anything, but everybody's fishing for them. And so they sit at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. And each one of these boats, by the way, contains these are regular little old rowboats, you know, the little plain old rowboats with a couple of seats across, a minimum of nine guys apiece and 14 cases of beer. So, so there, there you've got the scene. And once in a while you hear the sound of a guy falling into that soupy water. You hear, and you're, oh, 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 out of the darkness, the total stygian darkness, the mosquitoes are humming, and you hear the roller rink going, oh, my, Charlie, oh, hey, Charlie, hey, Charlie's falling in, hey, for God's sakes, oh, and then, then it slowly dies down. They pull Charlie out of the drink, and Charlie is laid on the bottom of the rowboat, and he's erping up that green water. Now, the water that they have in these lakes is not like water you know about. These, these water, the, the water in these lakes is, is composed of, I'd say, about, oh, about 10%, 10 cast-off stuff that comes out of the Shell refinery. I'd say about 12% of it is used detergent. There's about 15% of soupy material, which is composed, I say, equally of decayed rattlesnakes, 
decayed toads, and dead crappie fish. Then there is a funny liquid that holds them all together. No one has quite, because <laughs> everyone's a little bit afraid to admit it's water. Uh, because, you know, I mean, it's, this is something we don't want to even look at. As I say, these, these lakes are made out of seepage. Uh, and so there it is. There's that stuff. And it just sort of lays there. And about August, after the sun has cooked this, this stuff for, oh, as I say, uh, 110 degrees on the surface of the water all day long, by about August, this stuff is slowly simmering. It's like a great big pot of old cream of wheat. And at 2 in the morning, even, you can hear the water just going... A big bubble of some kind of gas comes up from the bottom and just bursts by your boat. Ooh, oh, boy, I want to smell it. You'd smell it from miles away. And, and, and the saddest thing of all, of course, is that there, usually on these lakes there are about 19 cottages to the square foot. And each one of these lakes, ha each one of these cottages has a large motorboat. And I don't know whether you've ever heard a motorboat going through a sea of number 10 oil. It's a very interesting thing. Yeah, the guy has a 20-horsepower engine. It's And the boat is going... Sort of moving, parting the stuff. Great globs of water. Now, come on. Watch the show. Don't get excited. Great globs of water, you see. And then, once in a while, it's, this, is the, this is the funny part of it. It gets even funnier as you get, as you get closer to, to the way they live out there. They will, they will swim. They will swim in this water. And here's the way swimming is done in Cedar Lake, Indiana. It is impossible to swim near the shore because the shore is one great big sea of mud. And boy, I'll tell you, this is creative mud. <laughs> this is mud that goes all the way down to the core of the earth. They say that if you drop something into the mud there, it can never be found. Yeah, that's what they say about those lakes. You just drop it in, it just keeps going down and down and down. No one knows how deep the mud is. It just goes, as I say, to the core of the earth. So no one swims near the edge of these lakes. They go out to the middle of the lake, and this is the way the swimming is done. They, they go out to the middle of the lake, and the guy gets out on the back end of his rowboat, and he goes... <laughs> he bobs. Oh, one good thing about these lakes, it's impossible to sink in them. Uh, the, the, uh, oh, yes, the specific gravity and the surface tension of this type of water makes Salt Lake, believe me, Utah, appear dangerous. You can't sink. You just float on the top of them, you know. But you go... You, you literally have to hit your head on the surface of these things to get under. You, oh, he dives on, and he comes up. Oh, yes, streaming mosquito eggs and old dead toads and all kinds of fantastic things that are the that are the offshoot of various kinds of merriment that occur outside of the outside of the outside of the the roller rink. You know, there's all kinds of stuff in the lake there. Well, uh, so so you you oh another thing the bottom of the lake. Uh, where, 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 the, where the few places where there is no mud, the bottom of the lake is, is composed of a thick incrustation of beer cans. The beer cans are at least a thousand feet thick in certain places of that lake. Oh, yes. And so, so you've got the scene where, where you have a little clump of boats sitting out there. There must be about 1,200 guys in this little clump of about 150 boats, all in one little clump, because there is a rumor that this is where the deep hole is. <laughs> There's the deep hole there. And the rumor is, of course, that in the hot weather, which is always, the fish go to the deep hole. Well, so do the other fish in the boats, my old man included. So all I'd say about every couple of weeks, there would be an announcement made. The old man would come home, see Friday night, says, Now look, now I'm getting up early tomorrow morning because I'm going fishing. Well... <laughs> 
getting up early and going fishing with Gertz in the crowd meant getting out of the house about three in the afternoon, roughly. After <laughs> that's that's what it really meant, roughly. And 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 they had a yeah they had a, they had a rule out there. Now I don't know whether the rule is they also had a myth. Of course, myths and rules all run together. That if you had a bright lantern in your boat. The fish would come like mad. They could not. They could not resist the bright lantern. That was the idea that you hold the lantern over the water, and the fish would come to see what the light was doing there. And of course, when the fish came, you would have your worm down there, and that would be it. Well, every one of these boats was equipped with a fantastic lamp called a Coleman light. Have you ever heard of a Coleman light? Well, these things, of course, are wild. The one thing that they do draw is mosquitoes, and so. You would see this little rented rowboat if you ever had the. Believe me, you you it, it it's one of the yeastiest experiences that you can ever. If you really want to feel life, the, a little Coleman lamp at the end of a tiny rented rowboat, eight guys, fourteen cases of beer, <laughs> two o'clock in the morning, and the lamp is going. And as far as you can see in this little light, it is like it's raining. Every mosquito in the Western Hemisphere has descended on Cedar Lake because of these lights. And once in a while, you'd hear, <laughs> out of the darkness, you'd see these other guys, you'd see these other lights around out there, you see. Just a bright light, and you see a face in it once in a while, in the light over there. And, and the water is so flat, there has not been a breath of air stirring since late April. It is now August. There has not even been the slightest breeze. The water is, the surface of the lake is like just one flat sheet of old used oil. And the boats are sitting there. And you can hear the roller rink. And you know how you can hear sounds over the water? Then you hear a fist fight break out, yelling and hollering. Then you hear the police coming. You hear the sirens coming from Cedar Lake, Indiana. And then it dies down. And then you hear down a little bit to the left of that, and in the darkness, you can see the little orange lights on the shore. Wind sails in the sunset. This is the drummer who sings, you know. He's, he always figures one day Ted Weems is going to hear him say, Red sails in the sunset. How brightly they shine. That is a band vocalist in a crappy, rotten, nothing Mickey band. And when you've heard them over 2,000 yards of soupy, oily water through 14 billion mosquitoes, he is particularly juicy and ripe. Red cells in the sunset. He is overloading the 10-watt Allied Radio night amplifier by 400%. They've got the gain turned all the way up, and his double-button carbon mic is on the edge of feedback. Red cells in the sunset. How brightly they show, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's just the way they sound. And, and you're sitting out there, you know, fishing for crappies. Well, <laughs> that's what they are, crappies. I didn't invent it. That's what they are. Look it up. Look it up in your dictionary. I didn't invent it. I learned about why they're called that, because I got the job of cleaning them. But nevertheless, uh, <laughs> the, the whole gimmick was this. See, I'm an insane fisherman. The whole gimmick was this, that my old man said, you know, if you're going to come along, you can come along if you clean the fish. Well, now, <laughs> I wanted to go fishing more than anything else in the world. And, and my old man wanted to drink beer more than anything else in the world. And so did Gertz want to drink beer more than And more than anything, they wanted to get away from all the women. 
They wanted to get out and tell dirty stories and sit out in the lake and get eaten by mosquitoes, you know, and just sit out there and sweat and be men, you know. <laughs> That's really what they wanted to do. They wanted to get away from work and everything else. So about 2 o'clock in the morning, and of course, remember, I'm only about 9 or 10, and I'm, oh, boy, I'm just out of my skull with being sleepy. You know, I'm used to going to bed at 9 or 9.30. Here it is, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, and, and I'm sitting in the back end of this boat, and there are 87 million mosquitoes biting me, but I am fishing. I am out of my skull with fantastic excitement. And I'm just sitting there with that pole. They, and they fish out there with gigantic cane poles. They knew not from spinning. Uh, a cane pole is a cane pole. It's a big bamboo pole that's about maybe 15 feet long. And on the end of it, you have about 30 feet of, uh, of terrible, soupy, green line that is about rough I'd say it's about half the half the thickness of the average clothesline. That kind of thing with big lead weights and a couple of big crappy hooks on the end and a bobber. Well that's the way they would fish, you see. And and, and I'll tell you one of the most exciting moments is when three fishermen in the boat simultaneously, without consulting each other, decide they're gonna pull their poles out of the water and recast. You know, <laughs> A plunk, clunk, and nine poles are hitting together, and you hear the lines all tangled up, the lead weights landing in the boat. Oh, such swearing. You never heard such swearing, yelling and hollering. And somebody always gets a hook stuck in the back of his ear then. And then you really get some yelling, and it's all in the dark. And, and at the other end of the boat is this little light. You know, the light is shining down in the water. And, and, and this would go on. You would hear other boats doing this. Hey, for God's sake, tell me when you're going to pull your pole out. Oh, no, look at this. And, and oh, the, the, nothing is more aggrifying than to try to untangle seven poles at 2 o'clock in the morning just as they're starting to hit in the other boats. You're like, hey, hey oh, oh, I got a bite. And here you've got all your poles are all tangled up hooks in your feet and everything else. Nobody's got it. You've been waiting 20 hours, nothing. Well, I'm sitting at the end of the boat. You see, you got you got the story now. Oh, have you ever tried to watch a bobber at 2.30 in the morning with all the mosquitoes going in the dark? Oh, is it, is it ever exciting? That bobber sits out there. Of course, it's not doing anything. But there's always the feeling that it might, and it just sits out there in the darkness, just lays out there. They have special luminous bobbers. You ever seen those? They're beautiful things with a long, thin quill, Tiny round cork, and it's it's for for fishing for very tiny fish. These bobbers, these bobbers are very tiny. Yeah, but for little tiny fish, you see. Oh yeah, little bitty fish, and they they sit out there. Well, I'm out there one more one morning. You see, it's about two in the morning. We have gone fishing now for like seven consecutive Saturdays and have not even gotten a nibble. So it, the excitement of going fishing, the being there, everything, it was just a, just a delirious feeling of excitement to me. And I, I, even to this day, when I hear some guy singing like that, I get that there's a funny excitement develops in me. It has nothing to do with sex. It's just being there. And so I, at 2 o'clock in the morning, I'm a kid. Get this. I'm tired. I'm having a, the, the time of my life. I'm excited. And way down at the other end of the lake, you can hear, Red sails in the sunset, ah, bright. And I can hear the roller rink going, and the mosquitoes are humming. And once in a while, you hear the muffled shouting and cursing of somebody in another boat, and the Coleman lamp is burning. And we're sitting there, and Heine Gertz is stewed to the ears. Gertz is down at the other end. He's telling, he had a fantastic collection of rotten stories. And early in the evening, my old man keeps saying, there's a kid with us, you know. I mean, now, 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 you know, we are and by, by two in the morning, all of them have had enough so that, you know, it doesn't matter. They're telling stories, and I, I don't care. I'm sitting there hanging onto my cane pole when I get a nibble.
my bobber goes like that. Oh, I got a bite! I say, I got a bite! And the guy's all sort of looking, oh, what are we in? Shh, shh, be quiet. Oh, shh. We're sitting there. Everybody's watching his bobber now through this beer haze and with the guys singing. And all of a sudden, all the bobbers started... Well, they start pulling up fish. You never saw anything like it. We are pulling up fish. We're out of our skulls, pulling crappies in. Real fish. And they're flying into the... And they're flying one after the other. These little white fish are flying and hopping around in the bottom of the boat. And within a half an hour, we had 47 fish. We were knee-deep in crappies. We had hit the jackpot. Well, the old man, you know, he was just wild. He was yelling in there, screaming and drinking the beer and pulling the fish in. And all the other boats around us are being skunked. For some reason or other, we have been in the right spot. The fish have come out of their hole or whatever it is they are in the bottom of the lake. They've come out of the beer cans and the old tires and they've decided to eat. And we caught all 47 fish that night. And all the rest of the boats, you could hear them pulling up the anchor, rowing over. And the boats are bumping into us. There's a big, solid phalanx of wooden boats around us. You could walk from one boat to the other for miles around, you know. And we're catching all the fish. Well, the old man, you know, is out of his skull. By about 4 o'clock in the morning, they have stopped biting. We are now back on the land. We are in the car, and I'm falling asleep. We are driving home, and they're all yelling and hollering, drinking, throwing beer cans out on the road. Oh, they're having a great time. We get back to the house, and my father says to me, as we are coming out of the garage with Gertz and all the rest of them, he says, and now Jeannie will clean the fish. Jeannie is going to clean the fish now. He says, let's go in the house. He says, you clean them on the back porch, will you, kid? He goes in the house with Gertz and all of them. They light up the lights in the kitchen. They sit down. They're eating sandwiches. And I am out on the back porch with 47 live flopping crappies. And boy, that name was well earned. I am telling you, fish that are taken out of muddy, rotten, lousy, stinking lakes are rotten, lousy, stinking fish. They are. And they're all alive, and they're like made out of hard rubber. These, a fish, believe me, a fish that can live under those conditions is a tough specimen. These fish, well, I go in and I get my scout knife, you see. I've cleared, I've cleaned about five fish in my life, you know, out on camping. And now I'm faced with the real thing. I got the stringers and the whole bit, and I, I put the papers out, and I grab the first crappie. I grab the little son of a gun, he's flabbing. I take my knife. I plunge right into it. Oh, I'm getting sicker and sicker. 15 crappies, 20 crappies, 30 crappies, 35 crappies, 40 crappies. They're flopping. They're getting smellier by the minute. And that night, I learned about life. I ah, crappie after crappie. It was a matter of honor. A matter of honor. A man has his funny pays. 27, 30 crappies, 45, 47. That was Gene Shepard. He'll be back again tomorrow night at 11.15. This is WOR Radio, your station for news. Get television's most complete coverage of up-to-the-minute developments in Latin America, plus news of Latin Americans in New York. Watch Pan American Newsreel Saturday nights at 10 on WOR-TV, Channel 9. Stay tuned now for The Long John Neville Show. This is WOR AM and FM, your RKO General Station in New York. It's 12 midnight.